everyone, welcome to another episode of Debatable with your hosts, Nina and Kyle. I'm Kyle. I'm Nina, and in this episode, we are going to do a post-debate analysis. So this is part of a series of episodes dedicated to explaining the emotions of Debatable Open 2022. So the goal of this series is to give debaters a better understanding of the different topics they've encountered if they competed in the tournament, and give those who weren't able to join us a chance to learn from the motions as well. Today, we are joined by Marina Lim, who gave us our topics for the finance team of the tournament. So hello and welcome! Hi! Yeah, so first things first, tell us about yourself and also why you particularly like finance motions because we had asked like the motion contributors what they would want to talk about and you're the one who said, mm, I want to talk about finance. So why do you like these kinds of motions? Okay, great. So first, um, I'm a dev stud and a finance major. So I guess being a finance major also deepened my appreciation for it. But I think even generally, like outside of debate, I think it's something that's relevant to everyone's lives one way or another. Like in some way, you're always dealing or handling something finance related. And I think it manifests a lot in the decisions that we make, where to put your money, um, what to spend on, your risk appetite, which can apply both in financial matters and other things. So I think it's a concept that's very real and very relevant. I think especially that you get older, um, it becomes a very practical thing to have a good grasp on. So I'm also uh, working in the fintech industry and that also heightened my appreciation, particularly for fintech. I think in the debate sense though, I do think finance motions have a reputation of being a bit intimidating or sometimes come off as being underappreciated, I would say. Um, I think even a lot of motions that aren't strictly thematically financed can have an angle, you know, with a finance aspect to it. I think the impact of money, how much of it you have, how much access of it you have is always something that's going to be relevant to a lot of people. So if debates are eventually about impacting, I think that would help. Um, I think especially as well in development, development debates or in the development field in general, finance is just something that you cannot remove from that because one of the most integral things within development really is access to this capital, the accessibility of it, what you do with it, um, how strong are the institutions that are providing you with this service. So I think that's especially why I'm interested in things like fintech and decentralized finance. So it's interesting that you mentioned how debaters usually struggle with finance motions because I completely agree, myself included, I struggle a lot with this and I also observe a lot of debaters when I'm judging that they seem to have difficulty stringing together thoughts or like using matter in these types of motions. So what advice would you give people who struggle with finance motions in particular and what approach should people make when training for this theme? Okay, great. So I think first is, of course, to start with the basics. I think a lot of these I learned um, from my classes. Uh, I think like other colleges, even if it's not a strictly finance course, would offer like at least a basic finance class. Um, if you don't have that or if you're not enrolled in any of those classes, I think videos, books, or even Investopedia pages can be of good help because I think it's foundational to understand concepts first. Um, like, you know, the very simple terms, like what's a stock market? What's a derivative? Things like that. Um, how does a stock market work? Or what are the principles of finance? Like what's important to people? What's important to businesses? So concepts of liquidity, like cash is king, which is like one of the principles taught in like basic finance classes always comes into play. Then I think build up after that, 
Um, I particularly enjoy like films. If you like films, maybe you watch like Wolf of Wall Street or Inside Job. Inside Job's like I found a bit more helpful because it's documentary style. If you like podcasts, which I like to do like every morning, I listen to the Wall Street Journal, which have like both in-depth, but also very fast-paced, mostly updates kind. And similar to, I guess it's something I've been doing since I was young. So mimic that um, like learning or like appetite for learning. Like if you encounter a term or like a concept you're unfamiliar with, uh, I think it's very easy to Google things now. So you can very easy Google things. Like if you encounter something like in a video or a podcast, like what is this yield curve or what does this inversion mean for the economy? So things like that, I think, have become so much more accessible now and it can all increase our appreciation for all of these concepts. Yeah, I super agree with like watching films because even as an econ major, we were like we were made to watch all of those films and especially Inside Job for um, money and banking class. We yeah. were talking about like how did government inaction lead or contribute to the 2008 global financial crisis. And it was very interesting to me, but I don't remember anything from it. <laughs> but anyway, let's move on to the first motion in the set, okay. which is about whether governments of countries with high levels of poverty should subsidize the fintech sector. So I guess the first question here would be, when we're talking about subsidies, what would that look like? What kind of policies should government side in particular support in this motion? So similar to other debates about subsidization, the policies can be broken down into anything that makes it easier for the company to operate and recognition for its tremendous societal value. So it can look like things like tax breaks. It can look like direct subsidy to help in financing and expansion. So I think an important context here would be how a lot of fintech companies are startups and they don't necessarily have like large amounts of capital that traditional companies would have. Although like I think in the case of Southeast Asia or East Asia, for instance, that's not the case because a lot of companies have backing from like um, like larger companies that are also specialized in those fields. But generally giving direct subsidies to help them in expansion because the way a lot of these fintech companies go is they start with payments, and then they eventually go on to things like loans, nano loans, et cetera, helping MSMEs. So the quicker they're able to um, reach that point, the better, in my opinion, because that just means that they get to help more people. So that's um, something that the subsidy could definitely help with. So the motion mentions that it's for countries with high levels of poverty. I think that signals to government teams that they have to prove that subsidizing the fintech sector in particular will lead to poverty reduction. So on government, how would you characterize fintech in order to prove that? So what is the connection between poverty alleviation and improving fintech that you think would be relevant to characterize in this motion? So for this one, I think fintech definitely encapsulates a lot of key things within the centralized finance. So a couple of characteristics, um, simply because it relies on technology that deviates from traditional banking, it eventually became a disruptor within the finance industry. So just like a couple of things that I think are key, like characterizations that you could have to um, try to win the debate. So one is definitely the barrier to entry. As we all know, like traditional banks have very high barriers to entry. You need a lot of capital. Um, you need a significant amount of capital rather that we all know um, poorer individuals don't have. Um, you need a lot of documentation, a lot of IDs. You even need to show up there physically. 
um, bring all the documents, submit it. If it's incomplete, then you fail the process. You're not given a chance. So I think what FinTech does is that it reduces that extremely long and tedious process to something that can be done on your phone with internet access and with some form of, form of identification for the KYC process, which for a lot of FinTech is just a government-recognized ID, um, unlike banks, which will probably ask you for a lot more. Um, so especially with like making a savings account or just having a safe place to put your money on, this is already incredibly helpful. And it's sort of the same principles that are carried on up to loans. So there tend to be lower barriers as to, uh, towards getting loans. They don't tend to be as picky as well. The more, more fintechs are willing to give the smaller MSMEs compared to traditional banks. The second, I think, is that Placing your money here or using this just yields higher returns compared to traditional banks. So this is mostly on the operations of things. A lot of fintechs don't have physical branches like, I don't know, at, at least like within Metro Manila, you see a branch of at least one of the big banks like every other kilometer. Uh, like I'm sure it's incredibly expensive to have to maintain that. And when your method of banking is primarily physical, you, you pay for so much for that premium of the location, of the staff there, of the maintenance. Um, transferring all of that online is what makes digital banks a lot more um, generous in the return and the savings or maybe like in the time deposits you're placing there. Um, another thing I think is that it makes investing a lot more accessible. So investing, I think, is conventionally seen as an activity for the wealthy, like something that you need hundreds and thousands of pesos for. But I think FinTech provided a platform where quite literally with a small amount you can start, you can get some return on it, uh, do more with it or to keep it. But it lets you invest even if you don't have that hundreds and thousands that like, or even the millions that some investment houses would require from you. So I think in terms of being able to passively earn money, that also gave people the opportunity to do that. But I think lastly, and most importantly, these types of disruptive industries always address a significant market gap. So in this case, it's definitely those unbanked or underbanked. So again, I mentioned, right, like a lot of developing countries, like majority of businesses registered are MSMEs. I think in the Philippines, it's like at 98 or 99%. So things that are family run, things that are run by an individual, like a small business and all that. And it's very difficult to get a hold of credit. Um, if you haven't been using that bank for a long time, if you don't have a lot of capital, if you don't have collateral, but if, especially if we look at people who need it the most, they definitely don't have those things. And that's what makes it so difficult to gain access to, to those things. Like one of my professors um, in college in one of my finance classes even said that even if there's a law that mandates financial institutions to lend to farmers and fishermen, a lot of banks would rather pay the penalty fee for that rather than undergo the risk of lending to someone who doesn't have a good credit history. So it just shows that despite attempts of the government to try to intervene or attempts by the state to try to get financial institutions to be more inclusive, it just hasn't worked. So I think we're at a point that the characterization can also include that a lot of these alternatives have been exhausted. So things like government intervention, you can bring up other things, maybe like microfinance or even conditional cash transfers. Um, but it still hasn't improved and developed the situations of these people. And lastly, though, I think a good case study for the 
um, fintech sector, especially addressing the rural poor would be countries like China that was able to bridge that gap and was where in fintech companies were able to extend credit and loans to farmers or to people from the rural poor population. So these are people who otherwise wouldn't have been granted by a traditional bank. But because of the success um, of fintech in that country, all it took was a phone, internet access, and like a very simple ID to finally get these people to have the capital and to finally be able to build a credit line and a credit score, which most fintech uh, wallets or fintech companies have their own version of so that they can finally get access to a loan. Yeah, I think that's actually quite a wonderful explanation because usually when we're talking about fintech, we usually think of it as something that's very anti-poor or very inaccessible. And I think for opposition, opposition could probably argue exactly that, that fintech can be anti-poor. But I think most op benches would just say like, and most of them that I've seen in the past just say, well, they're poor, therefore they can't access like a phone or whatever. um, And therefore it is anti-poor. Um, could you help us flesh out this argument? Because especially in response to like the really well-built Gov case that you just gave, I, I feel like it's sort of harder for opposition to sort of maneuver around that. Yeah, I definitely agree. And I think even that rebuttal that's saying that because they're poor, they don't have access to it can come with many responses from Gov side. Like by arguing like the increasing tech savviness, like the Philippines, for example, like so I forget the particular statistic, but we're a very tech savvy population. Like so many people have a smartphone. So many people are using Facebook, for instance. Um, so the traffic online is quite heavy. So I think one thing to say here is that a lot of this access is um, not guaranteed. So there are still areas that have minimal internet access. So you can't, like the example of China, I think works because the internet there is probably a lot better. And maybe the, even the rural areas have great internet service. But the second thing that I think more importantly at up here is understanding the experience of the people um, and what they're going through, right? Because we have to recognize that not everyone is tech savvy. Not everyone understands how this works. Not everyone thinks that I can trust this. So barriers to understanding that technology still exist. And this is people's like money and savings. So it is a big deal that we need to get them to trust this. So if it isn't something that they feel safe with and secure with, which I think especially elder generations feel with it, when you know it's like money on your phone, it's you know not what they're used to, if they're uncom- uncomfortable with it, or if they don't understand it and they can't trust it, no one can force them to offer this. Um, like even saying that it's the best and only option available to you, I think would be disingenuous towards those people. So I think additional framing that can be introduced at opposition here is that development, no matter how broad as it seems, um, like in the conclusions and the reports and the statistics, is still a lived experience. And life isn't lived on that aggregate. And these individual experiences matter. So if someone doesn't want to put their money there because they don't understand like what is a blockchain or they don't understand like, or they don't trust that company simply like even something as simple as that, that should be a good enough reason and they shouldn't be forced or they shouldn't be forced to live a life wherein that is their only choice. So I think a Marcusense lens of development as freedom becomes very appropriate here because it can't be development if that was the only choice people had. If it's something that they opted into, but they felt extremely uncomfortable opting into, like there's so much anxiety and distrust as to where their money is going. Um, that is not a sense of development. So we talked about the very key issue in the debate, which is accessibility and the gains that the poor stand to get with more fintech. 
Aside from those things, are there extensions you can recommend teams talk about or look into? For opposition, I think definitely it's only the idea that poverty and development are very multi-layered issues and have numerous structural causes and consequently uh, requires numerous uh, structural solutions. So I think a good strategy at all here is to not the deny that it is the strongest solution to the problem and to present alternatives. Like a lot of states haven't started with the simple capacity building. A lot of states still have very poor welfare programs, which you know is the state's responsibility in the first place. Even financial literacy and inclusion programs can subsume information both in traditional and uh, traditional finance and on fintech. So the core principle should be that it should be up to the people what type of banking they prefer. It's their money and whatever institution or entity they trust more. Um, we have to respect that and we have to enable both. So there can't be an underlying assumption um, on which one is better or just because you're not qualified for one, you have to be left with the other and it's justifiable because it's good anyway. I think people need to willingly opt into that and willingly um, be enabled to opt into those things. I think additionally, there's also the signaling uh, that government subsidization comes for. So leaving it at the hands of the private sector may seem efficient, but there has to be some recognition that there are some fundamental gaps like in welfare, like in capacity building that the state hasn't done. And subsidizing a sector with a promise that it can provide solutions um, may help certain people, but may also be a smokescreen to overall accountability of the state on more foundational needs of that society. Would there be any room for extensions on government, on the other hand? On government uh, side, I would also say um, that the state of welfare, like this is more in response or like an extension towards what I also talked about in op is that there's minimal control we have over the state of welfare in that country. Um, there are times where it takes years or decades to revamp or even build up. It's highly reliant on having, let's say, um, good politicians in office, which we have no control over. And while we don't have the system and the infrastructure to solve that, I think there's immediate relief um, in this version or if we have uh, enable fintech to be the most reliable option there. So for example, if you don't have a government hospital to pay for medical bills, a lot of fintechs are starting to offer nano loans for emergency loans that are a lot more friendly than the predatory loan sharks that we see um, prevalent in a lot of developing countries. So a lot of them will charge like per week or like a very minimal interest rate so that it's something that's affordable as opposed to the common five, six that we see maybe in the Philippines where the uh, interest rates are incredibly predatory and people have no other choice but to opt into that because they're just so desperate for money. So I think the immediacy of the solution is something that's important. Again, given that these are lived experiences of people, it's important to have immediate solutions to it as well. And for as long as we don't have um, the infrastructure, the welfare, to be able to meet all of those foundational needs, we may as well enable an existing sector and an existing entity that has solutions for it, enable them and let them help as many people as they can. So thanks so much for those things. So I think what we can get from this motion is that while some arguments may be intuitive, there's so many ways to explore it. So hopefully the teams that encountered this motion or are looking back on their round after this motion um, can stand to benefit from this interview so far. So the next thing we want to ask about is the second motion. So this house believes that the adoption of a shared currency 
in the EU has done more harm than good. So I really like this motion, um, particularly because it's a mix of my favorite IR themes. Um, so I guess what I want to ask now is, what is the history behind this motion that people need to know? In particular, why is there or why was there an adoption of a shared currency in the first place? Yeah, I, I agree. It's uh, very interesting because it like merges um, the IR side of it as well. So going into that IR side, like um, I think it was a few years after the creation of the EU, and it was done mostly to facilitate trade, uh, facilitate in trade, and to facilitate in other forms of unification. Um, so we all know that the EU was founded to help unify the region and to um, try to not make the same mistakes in the past, uh, wherein there's recognition that war just mutually left countries devastated and did not benefit anyone. So this unification or the creation of the block was to unify that region and creating that shared currency mostly helped in facilitating and trade and mostly helped with foreign direct investment. So this is in recognition that there are some countries within that block that were richer, some that were left a bit more devastated and more in need of FDI. Um, so on the trade point, though, I think even regional blocks like the ASEAN with different currencies still lose up to millions of dollars per year due to these foreign exchange transactions. And of course, we can't uh, like in as much as we can predict like the fluctuations in it, sometimes there's no choice, especially if you're importing and exporting basic necessities of people. So I think the interconnectedness of the economies within the EU um, just made it made sense to share a currency, given how interconnected and dependent a lot of the states within the EU bloc were. So of course, this also meant that investing in other EU states became less costly and more attractive as opposed to investing, let's say, in a state that's outside of the EU. So it was mostly as well encouraging that mutual benefit, um, that mutual development that would happen with that shared currency. So that was from before um, why there was an adoption in the first place. But since then, what changes have taken place that sort of merits this discussion now? Like, have there been any developments in the EU worth adding to the context of the debate? Definitely. So I think the, the discrepancy in the intentions of when this was probably began and the outcome it had, and I think that manifests in what most people would know as the Greek bailout, um, it just shows that the intentions and the outcomes were very different and that warrants a discussion on whether the adaptation was really worth it or not. So I guess we can jump now to the arguments. And I want to start with government here. So what are some principle and pragmatic arguments that can be run or you expect teams to be able to flesh out for this motion? How has the EU, for instance, been affected by the shared currency um, or maybe even the rest of the world? Okay, um, so I'll start with like the Greek example because I think that's uh, one of the more familiar ones for everyone. So I think aside and... Again, like as someone who's been judging a lot of rounds like the past few years, like my biggest pet peeve is someone just bringing up Greece or not and that not diagnosing what happened or just like, you know, assuming that everyone gets what happened. But I think, you know, the brilliance lies in the nuances. And I think diagnosing what happened, the clearest way to do that would just be to explain the mismatch of the monetary and the fiscal policy. So given the shared currency, the monetary policy was controlled by the European Central Bank, which is headquartered in Frankfurt. But each sovereign state, um, part of the EU, still had liberty over its fiscal policy. They could decide what to spend their money on, um, the retirement age, how much to spend in pensions, stuff like that. 
how they spend their money was within their rights. So only having control over one and not the other compared to any other country that can sink their fiscal and monetary policies became precisely that problem because the government, individual government then of those states can control their fiscal policies, but the ECB controlled the monetary policy. So they had like no control to be able to sink that. Um, ideally, in most countries, they do sink their monetary and fiscal policies, especially in times of recession. They tend to employ both the expansionary fiscal and an expansionary monetary policy. So the fiscal being like in the form of tax breaks or government spending and the monetary in the term of attempts to increase money supply, like lowering short-term interests. So usually governments or central banks and governments um, will do this to combat recession. And generally, even if it's not in the time of recession, there will be attempts to align this just to make sure that they're not counteracting each other um, or that in the best case that they do complement each other. So that wasn't the case in Europe, generally because Greece had no unanimous control over the monetary policy, which is again controlled by the ECB. So Greece was spending a lot more than EU states. Their welfare programs were taking up a lot more. The age retirement, I think, was younger compared to states like Germany. So they were spending a lot more in pension for a longer amount of time. So that's why the condition of the bailout was generally, in short, austerity. So there's quite a long list on what these specifics are. Um, like about like how much government like reducing spending for government officials, reducing like social welfare, um, reassessing uh, people qualified for pension. It was quite long, but the end goal was clear. They had to stop spending that much. Um, so I think eventually that demonstration just leads to the conclusion that it's important for monetary and fiscal policies to be in sync with each other. And when you have no control over one, but your culture and your people um, want a certain thing, like maybe they wanted that welfare program, they wanted pension to be, be that way, they wanted retirement age to be that way, and they elect officials who legislate that because it's a reflection of what the people want, but you have no control over your monetary policy, things like this will happen. Um, and the bailout was needed, which of course um, led to some controversy uh, back in the day. So in conclusion, like at Dove's side, it's just fundamentally important to be able to have control over both. Um, you can maybe insert caveats that the issue of trade would still happen. Uh, these countries like have land borders with each other. They would naturally be trading partners. There can be attempts to reduce tariffs um, and to make sure that trade is as seamless as possible without needing to have a shared currency. Yeah, it's so funny that you talked about Greece because like I remember debating about Greece when we were both still in high school. <laughs> That's how old you are. Like that was happening time. and you were that was like happening in real time and you were still debating in PSD. Oh my God, yeah. Like that. yeah, so I mean that's for government. Um, but for opposition, Aman, what arguments and responses could you launch in defense of the shared currency? In particular, I really like the point where like, it's very difficult if you cannot sink fiscal and monetary policy. How would you recommend opposition respond to that? Okay, for this one, I think it relies on defending the merits of a shared currency because admittedly, like the benefits of it aren't controversial. Like Greece, maybe... Uh, when it needed bailout was very controversial because it was like big news, very sensationalized. So of course the flaws of the system were exposed, but when things were okay, I think it was just like business as usual, it's normal. 
So I do think it's it warrants to like highlight the millions or even billions of euros saved by having a shared currency. Um, at first caveat as well, that Eurozone members have also learned from the mistakes in the past and it's possible to adjust fiscal policies within the union. Um, the union uh, like capitalizes and emphasizes unity and having shared values. So I think it would be very likely to still get countries to adjust their fiscal policies appropriately. Um, again, another thing to note was that this could limit trade or even limit some of these countries um, and their ability to trade with other EU states. I think if it were more costly to trade with another EU state, and again, back when they had like um, different currencies, um, it just made it more difficult because of exactly how expensive it would be. And given they are quite proximate to other regions, they might just favor those other regions instead of EU states. So the shared currency sort of has that loosely using this term nationalist um, agenda in terms of favoring other EU states as opposed to, let's say, states in West Africa or states um, in North Africa, for instance. FDI or foreign direct investment is another unique benefit because if you notice some Eastern European states that were um, quite impoverished, especially post-war, needed a lot of FDI um, from Western European states. So I think the forest, forex risk for a lot of investors is just a top of other considerations, um, like let's say the company that you're investing in, the country, its political situation. But completely removing one of the considerations, which is the forex risk, just made uh, investors a lot more attracted to investing in those. It just became so much more practical, not having to worry about fluctuations in the currency and how much yield it would be just gives a lot of security to a lot of investors about the soundness and like the guarantee of their eventual investment. So I think removing completely one source of risk, which I think in risk portfolio, like if you're creating like a risk portfolio, Forex is definitely one of the biggest ones if you're going international. Um, yeah, so I think the complete removal of that definitely just helps um, as opposed to having to invest in a country with a completely different currency. So I like that angle, but I also want to ask like, what else can teams explore for this motion? So I think the difficulty with motions that combine finance and IR, especially for newer debaters, is that if you don't know much about IR, you don't know what to expend, extend to that angle. But if you also don't know much about like finance and econ, it's also difficult to ex extend there. So I kind of want to ask what perspective or unique take would you do in the instance that you know you are a team that unfortunately does not know <laughs> about either <laughs> about either yeah okay let me um so i think one would be and this is like a general tip for any debate is make it about something you know about right so the eu is like significant globally so definitely any shock within that region can affect um like the rest of the world so i think at gov side um, one impact that you could have if you know what happened in Greece, for instance, is that Greece needed to be bailed out. That limited, like, uh, that obviously came with financial shocks to uh, countries like Germany, for instance, which we all know um, is one of the countries willing to take in a lot of um, asylum seekers and refugees. I think that is one angle that I think is quite popular that most people should know about. Um, and generally having less resources and less money um, makes it less likely for Germany or any other EU state um, 
to be more welcoming just precisely because of that limitations and money uh, especially with people um, knowing that the bailout is happening knowing the financial situation of the EU and the country um, opening your country and opening up your borders to more refugees a lot of more people will see that as a financial constraint and I think that's what eventually as well led to the rise in populism and the rise of like anti-immigrant rhetoric within that region. So I think there can be some things that can uh, be pulled within within that, particularly for GovSide. So I guess we can move on to the last motion in the set, which is like, the I think it might be the most, um, not the most controversial, but the most popular thing to talk about right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sure that a lot of people were expecting like some motion about NFTs are about crypto or about blockchain just because of how annoying <laughs> like how much <laughs> it's everywhere now. So the last notion is about using cryptocurrency as additional legal tender. The first question would that we have is what would it mean for something to be considered legal tender? Because we do know that legal tender is when the state recognizes that it can be used as money like in legal <laughs> transactions and stuff like that. But what does that actually mean? Like, what are the effects um, that will happen if something is called legal tender or is recognized as legal tender? Yeah. So uh, again, like you mentioned, like to be recognized as legal tender simply means that it can be used to extinguish obligations. So you can pay for things off the bat with that. Um, right now, what happens is you need a crypto exchange that offers conversion exchanges to your preferred currency to eventually use that money. So like you trade your Bitcoin, you trade your Ether, you have to pick a platform that can convert it to Philippine peso so that you can eventually use that money. So again, that's also subject to exchange rate fluctuations, transaction fees and not. And also not all platforms offer conversions to your preferred currency. So that limits the platforms available to people who'd want to trade in that crypto. I think another consideration or another change that would happen if it's called or recognized as legal tender, which we'll eventually talk about again later on when discussing the off bench, is that it becomes a lot more attractive to other people. Because like you mentioned, like there's so much hype surrounding NFTs and crypto. People know you earn a lot, but I think the one thing holding people back is the risk of it, because it's also a very high risk activity. Um, but the recognition of legal tender, I think, decreases some of that risk because the thought process becomes that even if it is high risk, um, there is like a big chance that I will earn and I can just, if it's legal tender, I can like easily just use it to buy something else anyway. Yeah. So you mentioned a lot of things about how crypto works and I guess I want to break that down a little bit more because when talking about cryptocurrencies, there's a lot of moving parts, right? And I guess if you were a debater in this round, you don't have a lot of time to discuss the intricacies of blockchain and the nuances to crypto, for example. So I guess what I want to ask now is what important bits of information would be needed to imagine it being used as legal tender in the first place? So what similarities does it have with what we are familiar with now? And what differences might you imagine people bringing up? Okay, so I think very similar to fiat currency and from the name itself, a bit different from fiat in debate, but like fiat currency is what we call things like uh, the peso or the US dollar. Um, Its value, it's derived from the trust and the recognition that society places on it. The key difference is the regulations. So the Banco Central de Filipinas or the BSV has control over the Philippine peso. The Federal Reserve has control over the USD. But in this case, um, I think the key thing about crypto is that 
it is decentralized and currently deregulated. But the value and I guess the main benefit of crypto really is in that decentralization um, with decentralized finance altogether, like being a different topic that we mentioned earlier. So it makes do without things like brokerage or intermediaries, which are a large source of cost and makes use of technology, like you mentioned, like blockchain and smart contracts. And again, eventually it makes it more accessible and that's why there's so much potential per, for profit and higher profit in that case. Um, at Gov, I think some strategic parallels would be, again, similar to fiat currency. Like for as long as enough people are recognizing it as valuable, that would be the same case. The only difference here would be that there is no central bank um, controlling it. Um, and cannot make a monetary policy out of it, for instance. But I think a lot of other things that society values as financial assets also are artificially made, like things like art or diamonds, for instance. So it's not quite different from that, or even derivatives that derive its value from an underlying asset as well. So there's a lot of transfer of value. And for as long as there's recognition of that value, then it if people are recognizing it, then let them be. And if it's something that people are profiting out of and it's trade is similar to uh, like tactics to that of the stock market, then it can be something that's valid as well. I think on opposition though, the key like win here, I think, would be in how it's deregulated. So exactly in how crypto's values or like crypto's benefits rely on deregulation can become a point of tension because I know there were instances in the past of like, crypto, like certain uh, coins all of a sudden going haywire and let's say, um, I don't know, like it's, what do you call that? Like it's value all of a sudden um, fluctuating or going down or even in the platforms that use it. Like, uh, like when Binance, for example, froze and people weren't able to trade at the right time, they lost a lot of money. Um, so I think those are some like key risks uh, that are inherent to cryptocurrencies and you can't exactly regulate. So I think that like a big thing with this kind of motion is that there can be so many things that teams can bring up. Like um, you can talk about government regulations and how it will affect that. You can talk about um, like the effects that it could have on the ability of a government to control um, certain currencies, especially like you see um, places like um, Russia that just doesn't like crypto because they don't have as much power to uh, control and regulate it. So there are so many other things. Like you can also talk about what will happen to the individual who uses a cryptocurrency. Like will people profit from it, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I think that might be a messy like discussion because there are just so many things to talk about. So um, to try to clean it up, what are the most important issues that you think should come up in the debate, and how would you recommend that Gov and Op try to discuss these issues? So for Gov's side, I think definitely the implication of legal tender has to be one. So I would assess what are people trading crypto for? Like what is the intention of like an average person who's not like super rich and just bored with their money and decided to put it there? So actually a lot of people do put their money in crypto to try to save for particular things. Um, like I've read some articles where people put crypto so that they can pay for their master's um, so that they can eventually buy a house. So things that you know most of us would want to pay for, um, but like a nine to five job would never like earn them for. So again, um, crypto, unlike 
traditional investments don't require a large amount of capital and don't require you to be with a formal bank, which again has all of those barriers to entry. So similar to the principles of decentralized finance or like in fintech that we mentioned earlier, this opened up a lot of opportunities for people who are in the middle class and want a passive way to earn. So I'd say at government side, one of the key risks of crypto is one is on the costs of it, like the transaction cost is still there, the exchange cost is still there, the time value of when you trade um, is something that will always be a risk. But recognizing, because right, like crypto, and then you have to exchange it to your currency, and then you can spend it. But recognizing the crypto, like let's say Ether and Bitcoin, immediately already as legal tender, just reduces a lot of the anxiety and the risks that people undergo. Because no matter at what point you trade it at, that is still something that's valuable, right? Because right now, that is not valuable until it is realized. Um, and like realized being the term um, used to mean that it is real money or fiat money already. So in our case, let's say it's Philippine peso or it's USD. So your Ether or your Bitcoin is not realized up until you convert it. And before you convert it, of course, you have to trade it or you have to sell it already. So I think recognizing it as legal tender already means that a lot of those risks are reduced and a lot of the anxiety surrounding it is reduced. Because no matter the fluctuations in that particular coin or in that particular cryptocurrency, um, you can just hold on for it for as long as you want and like trade it when you need that money, when you want to pay for your masters, when you want to like put a down payment for your house, then you can use it. So it also reduces like the very irrational calculations, which I think is a different discussion altogether that a lot of people make when it comes to trading. Like there's a lot of like behavioral finance and behavioral economics papers um, showing like the irrationality or certain like trends in people's behavior when it comes to stock trading. Of course, it's very difficult to be empirical and very objective if it's your own money and if it's a lot of money that you put in and worked hard for um, that is at risk. For upside, however, I think the recognition, and this is where you can bring up the same premises, right, of like the irrationality of people when it comes to trading, will just open a Pandora's box. So people's like, like you mentioned, see the hype around this and the recognition can just increase that hype and reduce the inhibitions people have onto entering this. But we have to realize that not everyone um, should be trading. You, you need a certain level of discipline for this. Um, you can't be putting like majority of your savings here. You have to be putting similar principles to stock trading. Like you have to be putting money that you're willing to lose. But the fact that it is so appealing and so high reward at such a short amount of time can change that calculus and can um, like appeal to people and make them put more money than they are willing to lose. So that is an, those are instances that have happened in stock trading and in cryptocurrency. And we all hear like sad stories about people losing a lot. Um, I think the change in recognizing something as legal tender reduces those inhibitions and just um, enables people to more uh, to make more risky decisions, thinking that it is safe, um, precisely because it's legal tender. But I think again, you need to caveat it to the idea that cryptocurrencies remain deregulated despite its recognition as cryptocurrency. Um, so there will be like no central bank to step in if something bad happens or something with evaluation if it fluctuates or if the value of it suddenly falls. So there is no regulating body similar to a central bank that can step in when that does happen, as opposed to if that happens with like traditional investments and you're using your fiat currency. 
Yeah, I think that's very interesting because um, I think that one of the reasons why a lot of people think that it's very risky to um, get crypto is most people use it not in the sense that they want to buy and sell goods with it like um like like regular money they they don't want to use it to purchase something from the grocery store or whatever like they do want to profit from it and i think that it can be a blessing and also a curse and this motion sort of like makes people talk about that more and i think that those are good conversations to have but before we conclude this episode what i wanted to ask is if there's anything that a person could learn or take away from this episode what should it be like we did talk a lot about liquidity about uh, managing risks about a lot of terms actually we talked about a lot of these terms um so i i suppose that for someone who hasn't gone to investopedia before listening to this they might sometimes be lost so if there's absolutely just one thing that people have to take away from this episode, what do you think it should be? It would definitely be the importance of liquidity because a little bit of accounting here, but like current assets, not current assets. I think you took accounting because you're echoing. But yeah, I think the only lesson we have from that is that a current asset or something that is cash in it of itself or closest to cash, like let's say securities, which are current, and then the non-current assets would be things like, let's say, very non-liquid, like property, stuff like that. So um, I think in this case, crypto is somewhere near that. I think it's closer to a current asset because it's something that can uh, quite quickly turn into money, but you still want to do it at strategic time. So it's still, you know, not as important as money. But I think liquidity is a very important concept to have. Liquidity is important. Having money, like fiat money at that with you is important in cases of emergencies, in cases where something unexpected happens. And that's why, um, precisely why you cannot be putting like, a lot of your savings in crypto, please never do that. Um, yeah, but I think even in debate, when you're assessing whether people should be putting money into something or what is important, again, to businesses and people, it's really money in, it, in itself and not any other form of asset. Yeah, so I think that perfectly concludes this episode. Thank you so much again for taking the time out of your day to make these motions, to explain the complexities of the finance world, not just to Kyle and I, or I guess mostly me, because Kyle probably knows these things already. Just um, a little bit, yeah. <laughs> But to our audience as well, and the debaters who had the pleasure of debating one of these three motions, right? Um, so that's it for this episode, and we'll see you all in the next one. Bye! Bye! Thank you, bye!